Slice of Medieval, where historical fact meets historical fiction. I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly, best-selling author of historical non-fiction books about medieval women. And I'm Derek Burks, best-selling author of historical fiction. Well, in this podcast, we're talking about Richard I. So, who better to ask about Richard than best-selling novelist Ben Cain, whose recent trilogy, Lionheart, brings this controversial king to vivid life. So, hello, Ben. It's great to have you on the podcast. Morning. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Hello, Ben. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sharon. I have a question I've been dying to ask you since I started reading Lionheart, and that is, after such a successful career writing all things Roman, why Richard I? I suppose, being completely frank, he's one of the most iconic figures in English slash British history and it's always wise to think of a topic that is potentially commercially successful so probably like yourself and Derek I'm, I'm obsessed with all periods of history I could happily write novels set set whenever and uh, I, I would like to do so at some stage in the future but my my novel writing you know, pays my bills, it feeds my kids. So I do always have to keep a, a really sort of uh, close eye on what might um, what might do well or not do well. And they say about bands that you're only as good as your last album. And it's not quite true about novelists, I don't think, but it has a lot of relevance. And I was pitching ideas for non-Roman uh, topics to my publisher uh, because that was one of the things they were insisting. My new publisher, Orion, um, was was wanting me to do a non-Roman novel. And uh, Richard was one of the first characters that I thought of, bearing in mind that I'd looked around at lots of other periods of history. Oh, who's done such a series? Who's done another series? And I wanted to to try something that hadn't really been done. Obviously, Sharon K. Penman, the American novelist, who sadly died in the last year or two, she'd done a, a big series of books about Richard, but her style of novel is is quite different to mine. So I didn't feel that uh, I would be, you know, potentially losing out on any readers or whatever. So, so but, and, you know, once I'd researched the topic, I just thought this is the most incredible man and the things he did were insane, uh, especially when he went to the Holy Land. So it just took on a life of its own as as, as these characters do. Yeah, he certainly gives you plenty of um, material, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how did you go about researching the period? Because you've gone from Roman to 12th century. Was that a big change? Or is it just you're in research mode, so you just read as much as you can? No, it was a huge change. It was quite a scary topic because I think it was 13 Roman novels I'd written before I started the first Richard one. And so... A bit like any historical novelist who's written a lot of books in one period, your background knowledge just becomes this great big reservoir that you can dip into without having to do 
massive amounts of research. And so the idea of switching forward a good thousand years or more when I've got more than 10 years of experience of writing about Rome was, was, was frankly terrifying. I spent three months doing nothing but research and thinking, how can I, how can I pull this off? I, you know, I don't know enough. I don't know enough. And uh, in the end, I, I just literally threw myself into it. So weirdly, there, there isn't a, a textbook on Richard I that's new. There's one from about three years ago. And then they're pretty much uh, the only ones that exist in English anyway, are 30 and 40 years old. So I read all of them. And along with uh, contemporary texts by monks of the time and bought as many books about everyday life of the time as well. And literally, you know, devoured them, but got writing after about three months because research can become this sort of vicious circle and you've got to get cracking with a book. So I was researching the whole time I was writing and the last six or eight books, I've always found a friendly academic who will proofread my book for for errors. And I was lucky enough to get a professor of medieval history whose specialist topic is the Angevins and He's actually from the same university I went to in in Ireland, University College Dublin. Michael Staunton is his name. And he was good enough to read the three books before they went to print. And luckily, didn't find very much um, in the way of errors. There were were some, but none of them required major rewrites, which was a huge relief. So it was obviously a, a big change, as you've said, an entirely new historical landscape, really, isn't it, from the Roman period. So what was most difficult about that big change in what you're writing about? What a good question. I think there isn't anything specific about the period compared to the Roman period, it was just the the complete otherness of it. You know, first century BC Rome <laughs> compared to 12th century AD London slash France slash Holy Land. Everything had changed really compared to, to Roman times because I mostly write about the Roman Republic so it wasn't even a monarchy. And so it was overwhelmingly different which was probably, I suppose, in some ways good because I had to throw out everything I knew about Rome rather than if it was maybe a closer time period maybe I would have thought, oh well I could use this bit of information or that bit of information because that's what they were doing only 100 years ago but it was so totally different that I I pretty much disregarded anything Roman that was in my head I mean I threw in a few little homage yeah. uh, when they were in the Holy Land I mentioned uh, King Herod's uh, palace and city of Caesarea because I'd been there when I went to Israel on the research trip for, 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 for Lionheart and it was an amazing place so I had them visit it in a couple of lines but pretty much everything was different and so I just had to had to accept that and tread lightly and make sure I wasn't making horrible mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, that that certainly resonates with me as well, you know, changing periods. Derek went back in time to the Romans and you went forward <laughs> in time from the Romans. Yeah, yeah, it's well, quite funny, isn't it? Yeah, in my case, I was going back to sort of the end of Rome rather than the Republic that you might be writing about. So there were some things that, that had at least evolved into the medieval period from that time of the 5th, 6th century. Whereas 1st century BC or AD, I mean, that that's a that's a light year away from uh, from the medieval period. Now, I notice, well, I say I notice, it's fairly obvious that the central character in Lionheart, apart from Richard himself, is an Irishman, Ferdia, or Rufus, as, he, as he's called by the, by the Normans. Is there... I know he's Irish and you're Irish, and I'm not going to draw any sort of simplistic conclusion here, but do you do identify at all with Ferdia? 
Yes, uh, that's perceptive of you. Um, I've had I've had this email from from a couple of my really dedicated readers who who noticed this. There's, I mean, not the kind of heroic things he does, obviously, because I'm just a normal bloke, a normal person like both of you. But there are definitely some parallels, yeah. And there are points at which, especially in the third book. He's basically lived in another country for more than half his life, and his sense of being Irish is not what it was. And he wonders what it would be like to go back, and would he fit in, and would everything have changed, and so on and so on. Um, and indeed, you know, the feelings of ambivalence uh, slash dislike towards the English in the, in the first book. You know, when I came over to uh, Britain more than twenty years ago, I was quite Republican uh, and. Um, you know, quite a strong believer in a united Ireland, not in violence, but, but uh, you know, definitely that uh, Ireland should be one country. But most British people, unless they've been in the forces, ironically, have no idea at all of, of what happened in Ireland and why the troubles happened and so on in Northern Ireland. Not trying to point fingers at all, but, you know, there were a great deal of there was a great deal of wrong done to Ireland, which is what caused uh, the, the, the war of independence that saw Ireland become, you know, win its freedom and then did give rise to the troubles in Northern Ireland as well. And yet, um, you know, by the end of the trilogy, Ferdia slash Rufus is, you know, the most loyal servant of, of Richard the Lionheart you, that you could think of. And you know, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a, what's the word, fair-minded person. I've been living in England for however long. And, you know, I'm, I'm married an English woman. My kids are half, half English slash British, whatever. British people are lovely, you know, that uh, they're, they're just as nice as any people anywhere else in the world. And there was a census in Northern Ireland recently in which it was revealed that Catholics were in the majority for the first time. And, you know, for most, it was really interesting because most of my life I would have gone, hey, that's amazing. You know, maybe they'll vote to be, you know, to join Ireland and become one country. And I looked at it and I went, um, if, if if they want to, great. And if they don't want to, if the majority vote to stay with Britain, great. You know, it really doesn't affect me and I'm, I don't really care. And I was I was actually really pleased by that response because I think it shows that I, uh, I'm i a bigger person than I was 25 years ago, whatever. So I guess like Ferdia, you've been uh, influenced by what is around you in in other places since you left Ireland so some parallels definitely yeah yeah definitely all right then on to the house of Anjou this is my period as well I've been doing about King John for the last three books so um I've got a lot of background on it and I still don't think I know enough the house of Anjou was a rather tempestuous environment how did you manage to assess Richard's relationships with his parents and his siblings because I think there's a great story from Richard when John betrayed him at one point and Richard just said oh he's just a boy and he was something like 30 at the time that's right <laughs> yeah the younger brother. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I, I, you probably got a better handle on it than me, Sharon. If you've written a number of books just about that, whereas you know, mine was sort of overarching. It was only first and the third book there was more of it. But um, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, as a as a writer, I I would I was with um, Rufus the whole way. I would have done John in if I was Richard. I would have literally got rid of him. Now I I think Richard was that was not the why would not have been the best decision because of the fact that he obviously didn't have an adult heir. He only had his nephew, who was a small child, Jeffrey's son in in Brittany. But I think one of the one I tried to I tried to bring it as much to the fore as I could without being like Sharon K. Penman, who you know that's what 
that's kind of the meat and bones of her novels, isn't it? The the family politics. And the, and it's great, but I didn't want to get into that much depth. But as I write more and more books, I, I, I've grown quite tired of writing endless battle scenes. So it's really good fun to uh, hear Derek laughing. So he's probably finding the same thing. Yes. Derek just kills off all his characters. Usually my favourite. I've mellowed. <laughs> There's only so many ways you can slice and dice somebody. You know, it literally does become really boring. <laughs> in fact, just this morning, I'm doing um, a Kickstarter yeah. uh, like, I, like I do most years at this time of, the, the, the you know, this season. And I'm just writing a confrontation scene. And I thought with great delight how it won't be a fight. The fight will be avoided. It'll nearly be a fight, but it won't be a fight. So sorry, I'm moving away from the politics of the House <laughs> of Anjou. Um, there were some great quotes like the devil's brood and just the, the whole evidence of the, the rebellions of the brothers against the father you know in the 1170s uh, probably fermented by the mum Eleanor of Aquitaine and then she obviously spent most of her life in prison because of mm-hmm. it uh, but what I found the most extraordinary thing I found about it was the way that Henry II didn't alienate his sons like they'd rebel against him and then he'd kiss and make up with them and I just I really struggled with getting my head around that maybe it's just because I'm such a black and white person like if you if I was the king and you were my son and you rebelled against me mate you're not you're not coming back into the fold but that's easy to say isn't it because if you don't kiss and make up with your eldest son then you've got no heir if you boot out two of the youngest ones because John was too young wasn't it it was Richard and Geoffrey and then what happens if the eldest one dies you're back to you've got no heir except John who's only a kid so I don't know if you know what what was your take on it I I, I did struggle with it you know friends did something dreadful to me I just kind of go well I'm not your friend anymore you know good luck but it's slightly different when you're a monarch yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's yeah. like Henry thought boys will be boys, but Eleanor encouraging them was a really bad thing. The wife can't do it, but the boys are just spreading their wings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there was this definitely inconsistency there, wasn't it? You know, house mm. arrest for her for 18 years or whatever, but the lads are fine. <laughs> but I also think it was he was letting them stay busy because if you look at the actual sharing out of power, he gave them titles and castles, but he never actually let go of the reins to let them be their own people. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, which is why the young king, Henry, was so browned off, isn't it, supposedly? Yeah, because he wasn't allowed to do anything. Whereas Richard, who was given Aquitaine because of his mother, was was off basically ruling from and fighting and doing siege warfare from the age of 16. And it's definitely um, one of those things, you just look at it from the outside, it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's re- really, really strange. But I do think a lot of it was Henry just trying to hold on to everything and um, keeping the boys busy by yeah. letting them have a little bit of a rebellion and every now and then so long as they didn't get hold of any power yes. yeah I think there's probably a lot of truth in that it's hard to know isn't it but that does make sense yeah now much is made of the need for a king to have a son Richard didn't have a son except for an illegitimate one and yeah he didn't seem to be that bothered how do you describe his marriage with Berengaria do you think they were incompatible or he was just more interested in fighting I think the latter and uh, maybe they're both in fact again there's there's startlingly in little information very frustrating because you know details like that are the kind of things that are really important when you're trying to flesh out a, an historical novel and the the sources in, in in an awful lot of time periods are frequently 
uh, silent in that regard. So, you know, it was quite sort of romantic in a way, the way he took her to the Holy Land. But when he obviously was separated from her when he was returning, she'd gone a safer route uh, and was in Rome and then he got taken prisoner. But but when he got freed in 1194, he made very little effort to go and see her immediately. And for the subsequent five years of his reign, appears not to have visited her very much at all. And that screams incompatibility. But then arranged marriages weren't necessarily going to be something that, that worked that well. But the, the um, incentive to, to have an heir is, is, is and or was and is imperative. Everybody knows that, you know, even with the British royal family today, it's really quick to you know, when, when when people get married, they have to have a kid to make sure that the line continues. And Richard doesn't seem to have been that interested in that. I, I My personal take, which obviously could be wrong, but just because of his attitude and the way he fought and the way he he, he seemed to love military campaigning was that he, he was one of those guys who just uh, absolutely loved fighting. Like, like you said, absolutely loved warfare. And he was really, really good at it. And he had John in the background. And, you know, you mentioned how he just laughed and said, oh, he's only a boy. I mean, maybe, maybe in the back of his mind, he, he, he thought that if Berengaria never gets pregnant, then, then there's always John. And also he was relatively young when he died. He was only 42. So he could easily have been thinking in his head that there was plenty of time for him to have an heir. He might have lived until he was in his 60s or maybe even 70s. So potentially there was plenty of time to to make sure that there was someone to, to replace him. But obviously it didn't happen because he foolishly insisted on walking around a, a castle uh, without any armor and someone shot him in the neck with a crossbow. <laughs> so yeah, a really stupid way to go considering he was such a great war leader. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's one of those, oh, I should have remembered to put my armor on. <laughs> yeah. yeah as, as is sometimes the case, those sort of wounds in the Middle Ages, you know, can be pretty unpleasant to die from as well. It wasn't exactly quick. No, was it? it was It was almost a week it took him to die. So yeah. um, for, for the listeners who don't know, the crossbow bolt of the time, I've got a replica one. And until you actually hold something like that in your hands, you don't quite realize how awful it is. So it's as long as a man's forearm and a good part of his hand. The head is barbed and the, the wood of the shaft is as thick as your little finger. And it went in to him at the angle of his neck and his shoulder. So if you think just behind your collarbone or, uh, or between your collarbone and your shoulder blade, if you like. So a really, really um, highly vascular and a uh, place where you don't want infection to to get and it lodged and he tried to pull it out himself wouldn't wait for the surgeon it broke the surgeon freed it with a great deal of effort there was a huge amount of blood loss and then it took him the gut like i say the guts of a week to die of blood poisoning really horrible yeah i mean obviously as you've said i mean this is a man who who lives to fight almost and the thing with which richard has always been associated is obviously the crusades i suspect that that area was was quite difficult to research the crusades yes and no uh, there were I would actually say potentially no because unusually for the time there are there are a number of accounts of, of his crusade and you know the number the, the, the monks that wrote down the history of his life along with other kings and monarchs of, of England can sweep over a year of his life with with a with a paragraph but there are actually five accounts of Richard's crusade uh, three Christian, 
and two Muslim that that survive in their entirety as book. And I've, I've read I've read them all. And um, I don't know if either of you have ever had this with your research, but it was the first time I'd ever had it because clearly 800 years ago, the Christian monk who was writing down what Richard did and the uh, Muslim cleric or scribe, in fact, there were scribes. One of them was a close. Uh, he was the secretary to Saladin. Uh, the, those two men who were writing things down, they never met each other. And so when they both wrote down the same thing to do with this campaign in the Holy Land, it's pretty much a cast iron guarantee that it happened yeah. because they didn't mm-hmm. meet. And, and those texts were literally, you know, buried in the mists of time, probably for hundreds of years until modern scholars could look at them and go, oh my goodness. And so the, the most dramatic scene of all, which which was confirmed by these, these two opposing sides, if you like, that wrote things down, was Richard's ridiculous uh, attack on Saladin's army outside Joppa, which is modern day Jaffa in Israel, where he they, they'd sailed down to um, help take the city back because Saladin had, had retaken it from the Christian defenders. And he arrived with just a few ships and, and literally only a few hundred men and charged ashore, not even fully armored, charged the whole Muslim army with a few few hundred men and put them to flight. And then in a, in a battle the next day outside the walls with 12 horses uh, or 13 horses that they'd got in, in the city that were complete nags. He led two charges on Saladin's army with 12 men and he put them to flight. And, and this Muslim um, scribe wrote it down as well. And it's it's like something you go, yeah, they put that in the film because Hollywood thought it was amazing. And you're going, no, it's actually true. Yeah. So the so the sources were great. And I, I found a really great book about medieval medicine in the Crusades. And I contacted the author of that, who's a doctor in the School of Tropical Medicine in London. And he was great. He, he sent me a load of articles that were behind paywalls, uh, articles of his about about medicine and surgery and so on, you know, literally in, in the Holy Land. And so again like so much research a lot of it might not have got into the book but it was it was really brilliant to to have that information so yeah i mean that that sounds fabulous Uh, and as you say i mean not only did they not meet but but one of the problems sometimes with medieval sources is that they're all say the same because they've all used one of the others as their as the basis for their account but in this case that's not going to have happened so it, it sort of Indeed. makes it very, very valuable. And you were talking about medicine. I mean, when I was doing uh, one of my books, I, I I came across this this Muslim scholar. Totally forgotten his name. He lived in Cordoba, I think. And as you know, in, in the Muslim world, there were streets ahead of the rest of Europe on a lot of sort of scientific areas, and and medicine was one of them. That's right, maths, yeah, and yeah, yeah astronomy, yeah. Yeah. and um, and it's it's interesting how how much knowledge they actually had i mean i used to think that in the middle ages they didn't know anything about medicine at all but over the years sort of writing about it i've realized that you know whether it's a battlefield surgeon or whether it's it's somebody else they actually had quite a lot of techniques for dealing with the most common problems they had yeah well that's it's it's sort of classic um human assumption isn't it that wherever i live (laughs) we know best oh actually you know the chinese were doing that a thousand (laughs) years before or you know like you say muslim muslim medicine um, was was potentially a lot better. That would, that's interesting because uh, when we were talking about the the total uh, different uh, otherness of of medieval world versus Roman world, you know, a lot of things in first and second century AD Rome were better than they were yes, in medieval yeah. Europe. Um, and medicine had really hadn't advanced very much at all in a thousand years. And, and it did, as you both probably know, it didn't really improve that much, you know, until the nineteenth century. 
so uh, it is it is fascinating uh, how the knowledge can develop in one part of the world and, and, and other parts of the world just be completely ignorant of it. It's interesting, so. this this guy, um, who's, I wish I could remember his name, but he, uh, he wrote books about surgery and all these things. And his books were used for literally for centuries in universities like Bologna and so on, where, where the learning was after the Renaissance and until, as you say, about the 19th century, when other things started to come in. Was he Al, Al-Zarahi? Yeah, that's it, Al-Zarahi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually went, yeah. when I went to Cordoba, I visited the street where he lived and it's named after him. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> One of those things, I, I hadn't heard of him. Um, and I'll quickly tell your listeners that I didn't write any characters on the, you know, on the Muslim side. So I didn't miss out there. No. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm looking at that going, oh my goodness, I wish I'd known that while I was writing the books. <laughs> well, the other, I guess, defining element of his reign, of Richard's reign, is his imprisonment, long imprisonment. It's a sort of almost unique event amongst English kings, isn't it? Was it hard to di- disentangle sort of fact from fiction on that? Or is there... Are there sources for that that are quite reliable? No, the sources are, are are quite are quite reliable. I mean, one of the things I I I did distance myself from. I was I was glad when you when I saw that question on your list was the a lot of your re- listeners have probably heard of Blondell, <laughs> who was supposedly Richard's um, musician. I think he was, and he apparently you know was trying to find Richard in all the various castles. I think it was where he was being held in Germany, and and would play his lute. I think it was. Uh, and that, and, and Richard heard him and knew that Blondell was outside. And pretty much every book about King Richard has him in it. And I, I read that, and there's no history behind it at all. I, I just said, right, <laughs> I'm not even going to mention the guy. Just no question that he's he's coming into it. But no, we know we know we know the places he was held, when he was held there, when he was moved. Um, various times, you know, there was one, there was a horrible bishop, a French bishop who at one point made sure that Richard was chained up with, with chains that were so heavy that the uh, horse couldn't have moved for, for a, a week or two. And there's some other details that when he was allowed out and, and uh, his conditions were, were, were loosened, if you like, and he was able to have his falcons brought from England so that he could go hunting. Obviously, he'd given, he must have given a promise that he wouldn't try to escape. So there were some, there were some great details there, but I I did also, you know, gloss over move the, the the plot forward i didn't linger in in the prison cell with him because that's a fairly limiting thing to do unless you're you're setting a yeah. book like that uh, but uh I, I i i didn't find it too difficult it, blondell is the only clear example i can think of where i just thought no that's that's nonsense I, i'm i'm not it's like robin hood when you know when richard went to nottingham uh when he got when he was freed in 1194 he, he one of the reasons um he had to go there was to make sure all his nobles were doing what they they had to do and he had to retake the castle but that's when all the books that are about robin hood say that the king met him i didn't even mention robin hood i I quite like sticking to facts (laughs) where i can (laughs) well yeah I get that. It's funny. There's a story um, that I discovered going on the Blondell thing. Um, a contemporary of Richard's, Ella of Salisbury, who was married to Richard's half-brother, William Longsbury. She was supposedly kidnapped when her father died to prevent her falling into the hands of ruthless people. 
and supposedly held in a castle in France and a minstrel um, toured the castles of France singing under windows for her to sing back to him and it's like that's Blondel Um, so it might be that it was a medieval trope by the chroniclers at some point where they thought oh let's put a minstrel in to find her yes Uh, yeah that that, that's I didn't know that's fascinating and I totally agree Uh, it's very common as you both know I'm sure for the same type of story to exist at different time periods people like like having a, a stylized story don't they yeah and um obviously but when that happens and you've got really good sources it's not so much of a problem but when it happens and your sources are really sparse that's when it becomes really difficult to know quite what's happening and what isn't yeah that's what i that's what i tell but if i'm doing talk on the romans i always mention that that if you get something that's mentioned in only one source you've got to treat it with a great deal of suspicion it's only if it's mentioned in two or more sources that we don't think copied each other that you can go okay well it's quite likely that happened then not all um historical sources can be can be treated you know as gospel truth really (laughs) (laughs) well this is it but it's something that a lot of people a lot of you know i'm sure you both get it on your facebook page or whatever or email well somebody somebody said this and you didn't put that in your book and you know we know it happened because and you're just going um no that's not true as billy Connolly said it it was in the sun so it must be true (laughs) so ben what is your take on richard as a king and a man I get asked this uh, quite a lot, a bit like, I don't know if you, either of you have had similar or Derek, if you've had it with around the Wars of the Roses, you know, who was (laughs) the worst emperor, the best emperor in Rome or the best monarch or the best whatever uh, of of England. And my answer is is often uh, goes along the lines of something like, well, I actually am opposed to the idea of monarchy in the first place. so I come from a republic, Ireland, and I believe in a head of state, but I don't believe in a hereditary head of state. So I'm, I'm not a good person to ask about who's a good king and who's a bad king. But I also think it's a, one of those questions that's almost impossible to answer, because how do you define it? So there are an awful lot of uh, untruths, uh, commonly held misconceptions about Richard, that he was a bad king because he bled England white to, to fund his crusade and to uh, get himself out of prison, that he was a bad king because he only spent six months of his tenure reign in England, and so on and so on and so on. I'll just set those two aside first. The pipe rolls, which are official documents that uh, still survive from the period of Richard and John, show us the amount of income that was w- w- came into the royal treasury and was spent. John spent more money than Richard did for his ransom uh, on his war with France in the years after Richard's death. So John actually spent more money than Richard. So that that disproves that he bled England white. Um, At least it proves that his brother did the same. And in fact, the revenues from from Normandy and and other parts of France were were greater than that of England. Uh, Second thing, what about his the period he spent in, in England was that most of his territory was actually in France. And if his brother hadn't basically given away half of France and Philippe Capet, the French king, hadn't taken a lot of it as well during his period of incarceration, he wouldn't have had to have spent all his time there getting back all the territory anyway. And his father, Henry II, spent large amounts of his reign in in France as well, because, as I said, most of the most of the English king's dominion was was two thirds of modern day France. So 
was he a good king? Was he a was what was he like as a man? He was he was certainly an effective ruler. So he wasn't just a battle leader. He was very astute. The institutions, the people he put into place before he left for the crusade were were, were good choices because England ran really smoothly. Uh, and, and his mum did a lot, but but it was often the officials he put in place who did a, a good job. And even when he was incarcerated uh, on his return, you know, trying to return from the crusade, England did not fall apart. So uh, he wasn't just a war leader. We know that he was fluent in several languages. He used to write poetry and he was a musician as well. So he wasn't just this beefy soldier who liked fighting all the time. I think he was um, he must have been incredibly charismatic because of the way that his soldiers followed him. Uh, you know, that battle I described outside Jaffa. Uh, there are nice examples after his freeing from prison when he was fighting all around northern France, taking back castles from Philippe Capet. There are lovely examples of how he would, in one siege that was uh, lifted, he went in and he literally lined up all the soldiers and he went along kissing them all um, in congratulation and giving them rewards. And you know, when a leader does something like that, you know, men men will men will literally die to to uh, to follow him. And um, so I think he was he was a complex man uh, and I think he was he actually did a, a pretty good job of what he needed to do to hold on to his territories when he was away and you know going off you could argue that going off to be to, to take back Jerusalem and so on that was crazy but in those times it was it was regarded as you know the best thing you could do would be to to go to the Holy Land and, and take it back from the Muslims and he probably went the lengths he went to because he liked fighting and none of the other monarchs kind of were that, were that into it they were more interested in holding on to their stuff at home so you could argue that he, he lost focus there but yeah I, I think he was uh, I think he was quite unique in in how much he liked warfare because that was not something most kings did back then big battles like in roman times didn't happen uh, in in the 12th century what was he like as a man he certainly uh, i wouldn't have wanted to have been married him i wouldn't wanted to have been berengaria um he wasn't a stay at home with pike and slippers type of chap that's for sure i suspect he would have been somebody that you could fall out with quite easily i think he probably had a temper as they'd say in ireland quite a temper <laughs> and juven temper is quite famous isn't it henry the second used to um roll around the floor right. thumping the floor and um foaming at the mouth when he got yeah, mad <laughs> quite childish eh? i think a very charismatic and likable person but you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of him <laughs> yeah i think i can agree with you with that i actually i don't think he was a bad king i you know it's just he was yeah. a man of his time as well and I think people don't allow for what was going on in Europe at the time. Yes, he went on crusade, but to be fair, so did the Holy Roman Emperor exactly. and so did Philip II. Yeah. You know, his enemies went with yeah. him. It's just they came yeah. home early. That's right. So why do you think he divides historical opinion? Bad history. I really, I honestly, I, <laughs> I, those two points I mentioned about him being a bad king and, and bleeding England dry or whatever. And you, then you get the whole thing. Oh, well, he was gay and, uh, and so on and so on. And if you, if you dissect down the history behind those it's it's pretty much all incorrect and i think that's that's a lot of it mm. and i think historians of the 19th century maybe early 20th century they were very quick to they were very uncritical in the way they looked at, at, at texts 
from from way back in history and painted these pictures that then fed through for much of the 20th century. I don't know whether you'd both agree with this, but, you know, more studied histories and, and biographies of historical characters, say the last 20 years, have been much more, okay, is there really proof that this king or this queen did that? Oh, well, if you look back at the texts, you'll find that there's actually, there's, that's actually more ambivalent than the Victorians thought. Um, I think it was, uh, that was a lot of the reason people wanted to sort of put a name on a king and, and it was very easy to go, oh, well, he wasn't there. He was only in England for six months out of 10 years. Oh, well, that that must mean he's a bad king. Well, if you look at, look at the reasons I described, they make perfect sense <laughs> for him not to be there. England was peaceful enough for him not to be there. Um, a lot of France was not. Ergo, he needed to be in France. It wasn't like he was going, oh, I don't like the air in London. I'm going to go and you know, sit sit by the sea in Normandy. <laughs> yeah, I, I think what, what you said about uh, the late 19th century and early 20th century historians certainly resonates with me because uh, Trevelyan and, and Macaulay and so on, they kind of in- invented a mould of, of British history and European history, which which everybody followed for decades and decades. And we were all taught it in school, you know, and even maybe now. That's, that's the more worrying thing, is that uh, I, I think it's very difficult for people to accept that what they've been steeped in throughout their childhood might be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Pe- people don't like change, whether it's to do with history or societal values or whatever but people resist change in in whatever form it takes uh, most british people don't know about irish history and if you ask me about that i could go off and talk literally all day about about irish history and english people just oh my goodness oh i had no idea and so on because it's not taught and there is sometimes a real pushback uh, oh well that couldn't be true that's that, that that's not true uh yeah so i think that's human nature really yeah there's a lot of bad history about is what we're saying yeah yeah, a lot of bad history. And even the stuff that you think is good, you it, you don't actually, you can't be sure it's true. So Amanda Scott, who's a, a friend, a brilliant historical fiction author, she told me about this book a few years ago. And it was about um, a British army unit in Afghanistan that was involved in some hideous uh, battle, really brutal battle for a number of days, I think it was. And this journalist decided he wanted to write a book about it. And so he he got permission from the Ministry of Defence to interview the soldiers who'd taken part. And, and not only was he able to interview literally everyone from the soldiers who'd been taking place to the commanding officer who'd been wherever he was in the base in Afghanistan or maybe in Britain overseeing everything. And he even had the footage from the soldiers' body cams. And the mad thing was that everybody's account of pretty much everything differed. And this was, he was, recording history that has taken place two years before or something and and Amanda was saying you know so you go back and you get some something about Richard the Lionheart which is from 800 years ago and you can go how on earth do we know that any of this is actually correct well it's true I mean the police these I think it's um the police do say that if when they interview people after an incident you interview five people you get five different stories you know nobody even the color of a shirt somebody's wearing will change based on the perception of each witness 
It's interesting, isn't it? Because just show, I almost think that um, that the, the historical fiction, in some ways, you could argue because of what we just said, it's almost fantasy potentially because it could all be wrong. Yeah, they should have a government <laughs> health warning in front of all of them. <laughs> well, they do, don't they? These are the, at the beginning. Yeah, it's all fiction. Don't believe yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Even even ones like Ben's who are based on a historical character, why not? <laughs> Yes, uh, yeah, apart from Richard the first, obviously. <laughs> okay, um, well, that's that's been really fascinating. And, and thank you for going into so much depth about the issues surrounding what you were writing about, because that's been really good. And your insight into it has been really helpful. And I think anybody listening has got a pretty good idea about Richard from, from what you've been saying. So that's that's really good. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Ben. It's been fabulous. Oh, and thanks for writing the books, because each one has managed to let me work out what my dad was getting for Christmas. (laughs) He's getting king this year. Oh, thank you. I hopefully enjoyed them. He did. <laughs> and th- it's been a pleasure. And uh, and re- I love chatting to other authors uh, of historical fiction because um, obviously just differences spring up. But I think what I uh, noticed a lot this morning was that how many similarities and or you shared my opinions to do with research or, you know, perceptions and opinions and, and so on. People change and times change, but some things are, are the same throughout history, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. You've got another project on the go, haven't you? Napoleon's Spy? Yes. Uh, thanks for mentioning it. I, I moved on. Another great leap forward. Another great leap forward. Yeah. And I'm doing Vikings <laughs> next. So the, the 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 fear factor that I felt writing the first Lionheart book is now completely gone. And so I threw myself into 19th century, uh, the invasion of Russia. That's that's what the novel is about. Uh, and that's coming out next year. I'm just waiting on the edit today, actually. That was absolutely brilliant fun to write. I say brilliant fun. Uh, it was. It's so grim. It wasn't fun at times. But what was absolutely brilliant was that there are more than 150 first-hand accounts. So that's what's coming out next year. And uh, I'll be very excited to to hear what, what some of your listeners might, might think of it. I'm looking forward to that. It's May, I think it comes out, isn't it? That's right. Maybe we can uh, we can get you back on the podcast to talk about Napoleon's spy and, and a completely different period of history. Oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah, thank you. That'd be that'd be great. Yes, please. I've been into the Napoleonics ever since the first Bernard Cornwell books came out when I was a teenager. Well, I think I think yeah. I mean, I read so many of them when I was when I was a teenager as yeah. well. I really <laughs> loved them. Uh, didn't ever think I'd be writing that period, but here, there you go. <laughs> anyway. In the meantime, Ben, thanks ever so much for joining us. And maybe I'll see you next year sometime. Brilliant. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Sharon. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Absolutely fabulous. Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much to Ben Kane. That was absolutely fascinating. If you want to find his books, Lionheart, Crusader and King by Ben Kane, you won't regret it. They're absolutely fabulous read. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. Um, I'm Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. So we'll be back next time with something special for Christmas. 